Alright, hello everybody. Welcome to another episode of Mythic Existence. Today we're going to be discussing Terence McKenna and his concepts of the Archaic Revival and Gaian Holism. Like McKenna, this episode will strive to be a sort of meme replicator to challenge us to reevaluate our own assumptions of contemporary life and to imagine a more ideal future. So, Terence McKenna is one of my absolute favorite human beings. If you're unfamiliar with who he is, he was the author of several books, Food of the Gods, um, The Psychedelic Mushrooms Grower Guide. I forget exactly what the exact name of that book is, but he wrote that under a pseudonym with his brother, and uh, he also wrote The Archaic Revival. Um, A lot of what people know him for are his lectures that are most of them are on YouTube, but I mean, he became basically a lecturer and uh, I mean, he's mostly associated with the psychedelic renaissance and the psychedelic movement. Um, I think he was born in the 50s, I believe. I've, I just, I've, I've always felt a strong connection to him um, because he was born in Colorado like me. I think he was born in like one of those southern Colorado sort of farm towns. And he ended up going to Berkeley. I don't know if he ever graduated. Um, And he ended up studying art history was the topic that he studied. But, um, I mean, art history does play largely into a lot of the things he talks about. But mainly he's associated with ethnobotany, essentially, now. Um, He... He was really famous. I guess his most the thing that really brought him into the public spotlight was um, kind of his experiences that he had in South America, looking for psychedelic drugs down there with his brother and with a group of other people. Um, I am currently I'm forgetting the name of uh, the. I think it was, it was True Hallucinations is the, is the name of the book that he wrote about that. And then there's a movie as well. So that's one of the main things that really brought him into the public spotlight. Um, but, I mean, he's he talks about such an amazing range of topics. He's really... Um, and already we have uh, my cat visiting. Cat's going to be playing into the episode as per usual. But, um, I mean, he's a true pagan is how he's been described before i mean a real polymath and he wrote he took he talked about subjects like alchemy and carl jung and psychedelics and magic and i mean one of my favorite documentaries that he made is called the winter king it's about uh king rudolph the second and sort of this bohemian sort of almost quasi psychedelic renaissance that happened uh, in uh, the Elizabethan period, he's got, you know, some great stuff about John Dee and sort of some of those, um, early modern mages in that video. Um, the, the meme movie, Terrence McKenna's meme movie is 
I mean, just amazing. Like it, that would be a great starting point if you're not familiar with him to go and just hear him talk. He has this almost like uh, hard to explain what his voice is like. It's it's almost like elvish or um, like it, there's some kind of magical tinge to it almost. And so I really try and emulate McKenna and almost you know try and channel him as much as I can uh while I'm while I'm doing podcasts and while I'm just doing my own research and stuff like that because he's truly an amazing human being he's he might be my favorite person throughout all of history um and so he was one of the earliest people that really kind of understood the importance of this concept of the meme that is so prevalent today um, as well as the internet, you know, he was kind of on the cutting edge of the internet and he's, uh, he's unfortunately dead now. Um, he died, I think of like a brain tumor. He said that he thought it was because he smoked so much weed, but what I've read that it's not clear if that's the case or not. Um, so it's a shame that he's not around today. We, he's really the person that we need around today, I think. But there are people that have carried on his um, his mission, his calling. I'd like to think that I'm one of those people. Um, I'm not at that level yet, but at least in my mind, uh, I every time I hear him talk, I'm like, this guy gets it. I'm not... I, at least at this point, I'm not quite as eloquent, eloquent and... You can see as I screw up that word as he was. I mean, he was just an absolute wordsmith and a poet. Um, I could talk about him for hours. And I mean, there are countless hours of McKenna material on the internet. But the most I'm going to be talking about today is this book, Food of the Gods, that he wrote. Obviously based on how prolific he was as a speaker and as a writer you could spend hours and hours trying to get a podcast episode together about what he has said Um, but I'm going to be primarily focusing on his work Food of the Gods because I recently read it Um, and it's a it's a really great book he's I I would say he's better as a speaker than he has as a writer. It's not he's not he's not by any means a bad writer. He's just such a sublime speaker that it doesn't quite come across in his writing, um, which is kind of funny because when you're writing, you can you have the time to just say exactly what you want and pick out the words. But he had this way in his lectures of just playing with words and coming with up with these eloquent phrases that just I've never seen anybody at all like that so um like a lot of our episodes yeah today's today's episode is kind of going to be a discussion about this book and I'm going to kind of lead you through a lot of his uh ideas and what he was grappling with in the book so Really, what this book is, Food of the Gods, The Search for the Original Tree of Knowledge, it's a manifest of new thoughts for drugs. That's that's basically what it is. That's what he says it is. It's forcing us to reevaluate our ideas about specifically psychedelics and about the norms of our society, basically, and how we allow certain states of mind to be allowed to be, you know, legal or 
culturally sanctioned and we don't let others and what that says. And so he talks a lot about, you know, um, things like sugar and caffeine and alcohol and, and things like those which are legal and are culturally sanctioned. And I mean, the reason he says that sugar and caffeine and alcohol are legal as opposed to psychedelics is that those are, you know, tools of the, the capitalists and tools of the bourgeois of keeping us being good workers. You know, we need caffeine to make our brains uh, work better in the workplace. They're workplace drugs. And they are they do alter your consciousness. Um, and alcohol dulls and numbs you as opposed to where, you know, things like psychedelics or slightly, you know, lower um, psychoactive substances like marijuana, you know, they, um, they dissolve boundaries and they force you to question what the, the dominator culture, the patriarchal, aggressive, ego-based, you know, basically religion of our, of our current world, uh, would want. So that's the main reason that psychedelics are legal is that they threaten the very nature of the dominator culture and the dominator culture are the ones that are making the laws. And so it's not beneficial for them to be legalized. Although it's the most, I mean, to McKenna, it's one of the most, or probably the most beneficial thing that we could have. So, I mean, McKenna, he talks about, you know, really what these plants do is, uh, I mean, they force us to confront the consequences of, denying the spiritual dimension of nature and thinking instead of it as a resource to be fought over. So um, that's this huge problem with our modern world is that we have absolutely fractured our nature or our connection to nature and we we treat it like a resource, like a thing that we drill into and get the oil out of. And we, we live under this illusion that we're somehow separate from nature and that we're outside of the the circle of influence, so to speak, and that you know our actions aren't going to have consequences, and that's what's led to the impending ecological crisis that we have. And so um, he talks about how we have a business as as usual attitude in face of this crisis, and it's just it's not cutting it anymore. And so we need to reevaluate things. We need to make a change and his change that he says that we need to make is a revival of these archaic values of being in touch with nature, using the plants as a guide, uh, worshiping the goddess, having cooperation, um, you know, these are very basic things that we, our culture and our way of life doesn't allow us to do. So, you know, for me, it's very hard for me to live in this world. I mean, I wake up every day and I'm just saddened by the the culture that I live in. I mean, I, I, I always say I would rather be in North America 600 years ago as a Native American than I would be in, you know, the current day. I mean, I just, I honestly, I don't fit into this world. I don't like the values of it. Um, and so, you know, an archaic revival is, 
I think the most important thing that we could have. I actually, you know, my personal, um, my Instagram page and my blog and, you know, the, the clothing company that I run, it's all called Archaic Futurism. And I came up with that before I was super into Terrence McKenna. And so there's maybe a little bit of a difference there because obviously we both feel the drive to uh, revive archaic values. But I think that also we need to integrate some of the things that we we have that are futuristic. And I think that Terrence McKenna would agree with that, like considering how big of a proponent he was of the internet. I think the internet's great. I think social media is probably the worst thing that's going on right now. Um, and unfortunately I'm one of those people that is, you know, addicted to it and just feels like I have to use it. Um, which is one of the problems today is that you feel like you have to do a thousand things just to be meeting the bare minimum. Um, and you still aren't meeting the bare minimum. Uh, it's just one of the paradoxes of our modern world. But, you know, things like that, things like transportation, um, you know, I think that there are is a lot of value in science, although I think that science um, s- sort of our cult of science that permeates our culture uh, denigrates the value of folk knowledge and things like, you know, psychedelic plant usage and stuff like that. But so we need to integrate. We need to integrate the old way and the new way. And we're all in the new way. And I mean, it might it might destroy the entire world. So um, McKenna, he he gives the first chapter of the book to talk about shamanism uh, to kind of set the stage for the rest of what he's going to be talk about talking about um, and. He kind of references a lot of the ideas of Mersey Eliade in this chapter. Uh, Mersey Eliade is, uh, he was a, a, a historian basically at the University of Chicago, but he did a lot of work in topics that, you know, obviously this page is mainly supposed to be folklore and mythology, but we branch out for sure. But Mersey Eliade, I think that you could consider him a um, uh, a mythologist for sure. He was kind of like a little bit more of like an academic version of Joseph Campbell, sort of in a way. But Marseille Eliade has a book called The Sacred and the Profane. He's really a scholar of religion, I guess you could say. But um, he wrote a lot about shamanism. And Eliade talks about how the shaman is somebody who, who transforms the profane state into a sacred state of being. And that the shaman is a sick man who has healed himself. And so that's basically the the call that McKenna is making for the use of psychedelic shamanism is transforming the profane into the sacred. And our world is on the surface extremely profane. But I think beyond it, there's always this... Uh, sacred nature that is permeating everything, but that has been kind of systematically uh, cut off. And ironically, religion is one of the ways where the sacred state has really been uh, cut off because personally, I, I mean, I don't know if McKenna would call himself a pagan. I don't call myself a pagan necessarily either, but 
basically I am a pagan, right? And so that pagan pagan sacred state has been cut off as well. Um, as far as you know, these religions they don't allow you to do psychedelics. They don't allow you to really probe into your own divinity and your own sacredness. And so that's really what we're missing. And that's one of the things that psychedelics give you a, a route to uncovering and becoming. Um, and he talks about how these plant hallucinogens, they're the, the beginning point for a lot of our oldest religions. Uh, I mean, you can go through and look at the Rig Veda, the earliest text of Hinduism. It's all about this psychedelic substance, Soma. Um, the use of DMT and the the mysteries of Eleusis, uh, you know, the ayahuasca of the the indigenous people of South America, the ergotized beer of Eleusis that we've talked about. I mean, all of these things are things that we had in the past, but are systematically outlawed today. Against the law, you'll go to jail if you're caught with them. It's a huge crime. I mean, how stupid is it? Just think about it. Think about it for five seconds. How stupid is it that a substance that can unveil your divinity to you and take you to this magical realm where all of the elves and the sprites and the creatures of of the of folklore and um, you know these these religious beings live there. They physically live there. You can see angels. You can go to heaven. You can go to hell, but you can go to heaven. It's outlawed. What does that say about our culture? What does that say about the assumptions of our dominator culture? So, and unfortunately, it's a lot of people that are in the dominator culture that are taking this side. They, they claim to be Christians or they claim to be this or that, but they also say, oh no, psychedelics are of the devil or whatever, you know? Um, when it's like, just try it for yourself, you know, um, figure out for yourself. Um, and so the second chapter is, uh, he kind of starts to touch on the fact that, you know, society encourages certain types of behaviors that correspond to internal feelings and thereby they encourage the use of substances that produce those acceptable behaviors. That's what I was talking about earlier as far as, you know, why is, why is caffeine legal allowed and why is alcohol allowed as opposed to, um, you know, these, these other substances that will actually challenge the very nature of our culture, the very nature of our existence. Um, and so one of the things that he's trying to figure out is like, where did, um, psychedelic drug usage and I mean, drug isn't the right word, but where did psychedelic usage start in the first place? And he basically hypothesizes that ancient people would go around and they would basically just, you know, try food. Like, here's this plant, what happens when you eat it, you know? And so eventually, you know, one of these um, ancient hominids would have came across some, you know, psychedelic mushrooms and uses them. So he suggests that some sort of mushroom caused us to come into higher faculties of awareness and of mind. Um and one thing that's really interesting is he talks about 
these these cattle cults and that, that's something that I've dealt with in the past like why do you know the Hindus think that the cat the cow is sacred why is there so much cattle reverence you see the bull um I don't know if the bull really corresponds to it in Egypt but um it's possible that these cattle cults were related to the mushroom cult in that you know psychedelic mushrooms often grow in and and around cow dung so that's a really interesting idea of like maybe the cattle and the psychedelics were related so yeah i mean i think it's an interesting idea that primates you know going around ancient africa were looking into you know what plants do what and that eventually uh, they came across the mushrooms and started eating them. Um, and a purpose of his work is to analyze kind of the intersection of psychedelics language and higher thought. Um, McKenna was really into the power of language. And he kind of says, you know, it, it, once you figure out that the world is made of language, you can turn it into whatever you want. Um, and our language and our thought is really what separates us from a lot of the other creatures on this planet, at least. Um, and it's possible that, you know, psychedelics could have catalyzed that aspect of our consciousness. And really the use of language and symbol symbols allows to us to act in what McKenna calls a supernatural dimension that is beyond the other forms of life that are on our planet. Um, so yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of his postulate is uh, it's been now known as the stoned ape theory, uh, that hallucinogens may have been the propeller that took us higher than other primates. Like why did homo sapiens become the one hominid that was going around in ancient Africa to really, take that next step, you know? Um, and so he, he's really interested in, in, in habit is one of the things that he talks about. And he's, he's trying to get a new definition of what a drug is. And he basically says that a drug is something that makes you act in an addictive way. And so he's actually saying, you know, this, our position is actually one of non-drug usage and non-addiction. Um, and he says that psychedelics, they inspire ecstasy instead of addiction, really. Um, and he defines ecstasy as something that's an experience that is cosmic in, in scale, that transcends duality it is terrifying, hilarious, awe-inspiring, familiar, and bizarre all at the same time. And this loss of the connection with this, you know, cosmic ecstasy has taken us into a route with a monotheistic God in which we have projected the pathologic personality of the male ego, a paranoid, power-obsessed, and possessive God, which is super interesting, like, that's, you know, the God of the Old Testament and, you know, the absent God of the New Testament is this, this male ego God that we have projected these values of paranoia and power obsession and possessiveness onto. 
And it's because we've lost the socio-symbiotic relationship with the feminine and the mysteries of organic life. And that's exactly what we're trying to regain. Um, you know, this the, the goddess, really, and Mother Earth. We're trying to regain that connection, and, and we've, we've lost it. Um, so I, I think that a lot of people don't really understand what the history of psychedelics are in the West, and especially in the United States. Because we assume, yeah, psychedelics, we've always known about them. We've always had them. Um, but that's absolutely not the case. Uh, we actually, Americans, found out about mushrooms in the 1950s. And it was because of a man named Gordon Wasson, who was an investment banker in New York, he heard these tales about this magical mushroom that was being used in Mexico. And so he went down and he found this woman named Maria Sabina and he did the mushrooms with her and he found out what, what was going on with them, you know? And so between the fifties and the sixties and the seventies, that's why the sixties were this real breaking point of, uh, this new thought and this new culture that was coming up. Um, and I mean, it was really funny because like the, the, the people in charge were like, yeah, we know psychedelics are evil because it's not making want people want to have this suburban life that we've created for them. It's like, well, yeah, if you think for five seconds about anything, then you don't want that suburban life. At least for me, you know, being like this, typical middle-class suburban person is, I mean, that's hell for me. That, that's the absolute last thing that I would want in my life. Um, and so, yeah, they started realizing that, you know, these hippies were growing their hair out and doing things associated with, you know, femin feminine qualities um, because the goddess was being reinvigorated into their life. And that's what they used as the evidence for these substances being bad and they made them illegal because it was apparent this is a threat to dominator culture. Um, and I mean, the rock and psychedelics were a, sh a shamanic connection in themselves is how McKenna describes them. Uh, trance dance and intoxication is in an archaic formula. Um, and so that's, that's still around. I mean, it's, but it's not, uh, as big of a part as culture and not in the same way as it once was. Um, and I mean, McKenna is, is pretty critical of, you know, typical Christian values. And I absolutely agree with him. He talks about how, you know, the, sh the shift towards Christianity led to two millennia of persecution and of warfare and materialism and rationalism. So, Christianity coming up and replacing paganism, worst thing that ever happened. For, in my view, worst thing that ever could have possibly happened. Um, and inevitably, we need to turn our attention back to the archaic way of vision plants and of the goddess. Uh, McKenna has a really interesting chapter, chapter six, The High Plains of, Plains of Eden, where he... 
I mean, this man would have made a good archaeologist. Like, this chapter is all about archaeology. Obviously, I have a minor in archaeology, so I've done a lot of reading. Um, and he absolutely matches the style and the tone that, you know, academic professional archaeologists have. And he talks about a site called Tassili uh, Ajir, I think is how it is pronounced. Um, but anyway, at the site, you know, they found uh, actually cave paintings of a man with mushrooms sprouting out of him. And so he kind of paints this this uh, archaeological site that dates back about 2,000 years ago. Um, or maybe it was 2000 BC. So 4,000 years ago. I can't remember which one it was, but he kind of imagines it as an Edenic landscape. And he gives a really interesting kind of uh, interpretation of the Eden story in this chapter. He says that it's a story of a goddess-oriented partnership society thrown into disequilibrium by a storm god, Jehovah, that is representing drought and climate change. Um, so I found that really interesting. Like, uh, it's kind of a story about, uh, you know, a, the storm god coming and throwing the, the goddess culture out because of this drought that comes about. Um, and this chapter is where he comes across his thesis. And his idea of Gaian holism, which I'm going to get to in a second. But his, his thesis, he says, In view of the present cultural impasse, I conclude that the next evolutionary step must involve not only a, repudi a repudiation of dominator culture, but an archaic revival and a rebirth of awareness of the goddess. So, I mean, hopefully that's come through so far, but that's his, that's his main idea that he's dealing with, is that we need to overthrow the dominator culture by having having an archaic revival and rebirthing an awareness of the goddess and he says that we can do this through what he calls Gaian holism and he says that that's a deconstruction of dominator values um and a sense of the unity and balance of nature and our position with that within that dynamic evolving balance so that's what Gaian holism is is uh kind of what it sounds like um understanding our place as an equal in nature and um you know dominator values are very much against that i mean like our the corporations that are just wreaking havoc on the environment and are just these tools of the capitalistic structure are the things that are throwing our entire life out of balance so um, that's his main points. He talks uh, a lot about the history of psychedelic use. And I, I mentioned earlier, uh, the, the substance Soma. Soma was something that I got really, really into as an undergraduate, as far as the, the history and like the ideas of it. And it got me reading a lot of the Hindu sacred texts, particularly the Rig Veda, um, like I said, the Rig Veda is the oldest of the Hindu texts. Um, there's three main sacred texts for Hinduism. The Vedas, the Bhagavad Gita, and um, the Upanishads. And the Rig Veda has 120 hymns 
purely for Selma, which is this sort of psychedelic substance. And we aren't sure what it is. It's this big problem. Like Gordon Wasson, he says that it was this fly agaric, which is a, a particular type of psychedelic mushroom. Um, but M- McKenna says that that's basically not possible and he kind of repudiates it. And so, um, what Soma is, is kind of, we still need like, uh, kind of like what was done in the immortality key of looking into what was going on in Eleusis. We still need to figure out what was going on with those ancient original Hindus, but I don't know if that, uh, is ever going to be solved. One really interesting thing that he talks about is this myth of Glaucus. And so this is a Greek myth, and I'm going to give you an overview of it. I'm going to give you his kind of short version. Um, I'm glad that we can tie this concretely back to mythology, but he, he basically, his, his postulate here is that this ancient Greek story was a, a myth about preserving mushrooms, psychedelic mushrooms. So here's the myth of Glaucus. While Glaucus, the son of Minos and Pasiphae, was still a small child, he died from falling into a jar, a pithos, filled with honey. While he was pursuing a rat or a fly, the manuscripts are uncertain. Upon his disappearance, his father Minos made many attempts to find him and finally went to diviners for advice on how he should go about his search. The Coretes answered that Minos had among his herds a cow of three different colors and that the man who could offer the best simile for this phenomenon would also be the one to know how to restore the boy to life. The diviners gathered together for this task and finally Polyidos, son of uh, Koiranos, compared the cow's colors to the fruit of the bramble. Compelled thereupon to search for the boy, he eventually found him by means of his powers of divination, but Minos next insisted that Polyidos must restore the boy to life. He was therefore shut up in a tomb with the dead body. While in this great perplexity, he saw a snake approach the corpse. Fearing for his own life, should any harm befall befall the boy's body, Polyidos threw a stone at the serpent and killed it. Then a second snake crept forth, and when it saw its mate lying dead, it disappeared only to return with an herb which it placed on the dead snake, immediately immediately restoring it to life. After Polyidos had seen this, this with great surprise, he took the same herb and applied it to the body of Glaucus, uh, thereby, thereby raising him from the dead. Now, although Minos had his son restored to life again, he would not allow Polyidos to depart home to Argos until he had taught Glaucus the art of divination. Under this compulsion, Polyidos instructed the youth in the art. But when Polyidos was about to sail away, he bade Glaucus spit into his mouth. This Glaucus did, and thereby unwittingly lost the power of divination. This must suffice for my account of the descendants of Europa. So, there's a lot going on in this story. And uh, earlier, before he was talking about it, 
uh, he discusses how uh, mushrooms were preserved in honey. Uh, honey is one of these substances that is an excellent, you know, preservation mechanism. Um, and he talks about the names of these characters. So Polyidos literally means man who has many ideas. Um, and obviously to this point, McKenna had spent a lot of the text talking about psychedelics as a catalyst to consciousness and to coming up with ideas and we have you know stuff like divination um there's something archaic and almost shamanistic going on in this story and glaucus means blue gray and mechanic talks about how the mushrooms would have been this sort of blue gray color so he says that glaucus literally represents the mushroom in this instance so i just thought that that was an interesting thing um as far as you know, maybe maybe the use of psychedelic mushrooms was actually, uh, you know, written down in the form of mythology. Um, the latter half of the book, he talks about a lot of other, you know, kind of historical aspects of of uh, psychedelics and other psychoactive substances. He has a chapter about cannabis, and he talks about how. Um, you know, there's a lot of weaving analogies that goes along with our language and how originally cannabis was and still is was not just used as a psychoactive substance, but as something that you can weave with, you know, um, you weave a story and you spin a web of yarn, like stuff like that. And so it's just interesting that we have these weaving analogies. Um, cannabis was also... Uh, connected to sidhus from hinduism and which are basically psych um supernatural powers that you can have and it's just i mean obviously this point has been to 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 now done to death but i mean it's interesting that cannabis is the substance that we've been decided to make illegal despite the fact that it's clearly the most benign like how is alcohol a legal and how is cannabis not um and originally cannabis was actually eight like he gives the uh he gives a fascinating overview of the first you know tales of of that have been written down and recently like 1500s i think maybe even after that maybe it was like 1800s i can't remember but it was a guy who had eaten cannabis and he he had like a super psychedelic trip off of it but the use of, you know, smoking is a really, really recent habit that we've picked up. And so cannabis wasn't originally used in that way. And he says that it should be used ritually. I mean, um, now we have kind of taken cannabis into like, you part, you, you use these things to party and, you know, you do them habitually and you, it, that's not the way that cannabis is supposed to be used. So, um, and then he, he has a great just history of psychedelics. He talks about how, um, you know, psychedelics and the mystery religions were both banned, um, in sort of similar ways. Uh, and it's basically because this archaic connection of feminism and the magical dimension were feared. I mean, that was clear through things like, 
the witch trials he, he hits on. Um, and ultimately it's because these compounds act to dissolve cultural conditioning like we've talked about. And that's why they're illegal and their, their legality would bring about the end of dominator culture. So we have this impasse, we have this impossible place to pass through. How do you get something made legal that is going to overthrow the people who decide what is legal and what is not. I mean, obviously we've gotten, you know, marijuana legalized on the state level, but still this, there's this, there's still a cultural taboo that surrounds it that doesn't surround alcohol and stuff like that. Like, dude, alcohol is the worst thing that has ever existed. Like it's awful. Um, but it's just totally culturally accepted. It's so dumb. Um, so ultimately, you know, McKenna says the answer has been found. We're not looking for the answer anymore. We've found the the thing that will resacralize our lives. Um, he says that this is something that's in our birthright is to actually explore our nature and to explore our existence, basically. And ultimately, this is an issue of human rights, of the most basic rights of being able to uh, probe into who we are, where we came from, and what is out there. So that's it for today's episode. Perhaps you have listened and you might agree with McKenna's premise that we need to reinvigorate our lives with the archaic values of cooperation, reverence, and reverence for the goddess and nature, and freedom to explore oneself with our plant helpers. Of course, the main issue is that their legalization inherently threatens the dominator culture. If this episode could be a call to anything, it would be a call to question at every turn, on an individual level, the logic of our patriarchal, aggressive, ego-driven culture. Thanks for listening. See you next time.